This is your host, Shashank Shekhar, and welcome to another episode of Shashank Redemption. Which now, in retrospect, I do feel like I should have done it earlier. How we make that more human opportunity to build Look at what they need in order to succeed. Been looking forward to this. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Shashank Redemption, where I interview some of the hottest founders and CEOs in the fintech and the proptech space. Today, I'm uh, extremely excited to welcome Brian Zittin to our show, who is the CEO at Regora. He's also uh, Forbes 30 under 30, so we'll talk about it in a little while about that. Uh, but Brian, welcome to the show. I'm excited. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about Forbes 30 under 30. That's something which is, I mean, it's it's highly prestigious. Uh, of course, there are only 30 people who make the list. Uh, but also somebody who's relatively young to be an entrepreneur and and somebody was was changing uh, different industries. So, how does this this that award play, and how some of uh, a lot of our audience is uh, probably in that age category and and maybe maybe a founder? Uh, some tips maybe for them to to make the list down the road. So so talk to us about uh, about Forbes thirty and the thirty. <laughs> yeah, I honestly don't know a ton of like, you know, what their actual process <laughs> looks like behind the scenes. Okay. I got uh I got nominated, I think, by one of my investors. They, you know, sent a couple interviews and then, you know, they didn't even tell me I got it. I just saw it, you know, oh, wow. when it got announced. Uh, you know, when it got published. And I was like, wow, that that's awesome. And uh, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like founders on it, you know, with significant traction, whether it be funding, revenue, you know, employees, kind of all the above categories. So I, I honestly don't know how to game the system. I just got lucky, I guess, maybe. No, yeah. And and I would, I mean, it's a good thing that people don't know how to game the system because that's that's not what a prestigious award like that uh, should should come to. But you're right. I mean, some we I mean some of the biggest names in the industry in the past have made that list list. So congratulations. Uh, of course, you're doing some amazing things. Um, let's talk about Regora then. I mean, how did uh, that come about? I, I know that I think in Massachusetts, you 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 had real estate salesperson license. I don't know if I, you actively worked on that side of the industry, but how did the idea of Regora come about? And, and talk to us about the journey until you decided to uh, get into that space and, and start a company like that. Yeah, it actually did start in the area that you mentioned. So I got my first real estate exposure when I was at Boston University. That's where I went to undergrad. Mm -hmm. And I interned at this big commercial real estate brokerage called JLL. And I just worked in the research department as like an intern supporting the brokers, but got exposure to just kind of the overall brokerage process, how it works, what it takes to be successful, that sort of thing. And it was a lot of cold outreach to prospects to try to get them to you know use you. And so after that internship, beginning of senior year, me and my college roommate, we started our own brokerage that essentially used algorithms to get the contact information of every single property owner in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And we used that to be able to prospect more efficiently for off-market deals. So senior year, I sold about $5 million worth of real estate using that. And wow. you know we saw the entire real estate transaction. So I got exposure to the mortgage, legal, and of course the appraisal. And so I was giving a property tour one day in walks and appraiser. It was like, you know, 
very old school clipboard type of approach. Yeah. Um, and we started shadowing appraisers basically and watching them do their work and saw how inefficient the overall industry was. And so when we graduated, which was in 2017, we took the money that we made doing brokerage and went all in on the appraisal process. So that is how Regora was born. Yeah, being being a lender myself and and somebody who's who's attracted to technology for solving a lot of problems, appraisal definitely seems to be one of the biggest problems to solve. If you're trying to build the kind of consumer experience that that probably they deserve, uh, appraisal has always been kind of a thorn in the in the entire process, is because it's highly unpredictable. Uh, sometimes could be very expensive. Um, and just it's it's very archaic. Um, and so I'm glad, I mean, people like you are trying to uh, transform that residential real estate valuation process. Tell me more, how are you transforming? How is it different than what, say, we are used to doing traditionally by ordering appraisals? They're going to the house, doing, doing the appraisal, come back in seven, 10, sometimes three, four weeks. So how is Regora different? Yeah, and and I think that you brought up a good point that I just want to add some commentary around to to provide the background on this. So, you know, along the lines of appraisal being a thorn in the side of like the overall mortgage process, yeah. it's because the appraisal is pretty much the only instance during the mortgage process where we actually have to send like a physical human to a particular place at a particular time. Mm-hmm. Everything else running credit, getting income, that can all be done online, digitally, instantaneously. You don't need to necessarily get a third party involved. And even for like title, you know, that's not someone that isn't physically going to the property. So the appraisal process is one big logistics issue. Actually, you have, you know, millions of appraisals that need to get done per year and only 40,000 active appraisers. So it becomes this big macro logistics problem. And the two big things that plague the industry that prevent us from solving that logistics problem is that there's a whole lot of of legacy technology and there's a whole lot of fragmentation. Mm -hmm. So after the housing crisis, they introduced something called the appraisal independence laws. And that propagated the the popularity of what we now know as appraisal management companies. So if if I'm going to be a lender, a lot of lenders use appraisal management companies to go and get their appraisals fulfilled. And so just to go from an order to getting that scheduled with an appraiser and the you know broker or the, the homeowner, I have to order it from within the lender's system, which then goes to like an appraisals platform, which then goes to the appraisal management company's system, which then goes to the appraiser's system, right? And so there's, there's all these disparate platforms and they're all really like old with not amazing APIs and it causes a bunch of workflow issues. Um, And so there's just a lot of friction from just doing basic day-to-day stuff, like placing orders, getting documents, tracking statuses. And then there's also this fragmentation issue, like I said, because there's hundreds of AMCs and none of them are communicating with each other. And so if I wanna go get an appraisal in like this neighborhood of Boston, let's say, and I'm you know a lender like you trying to place an order, there could be, an appraiser going to that neighborhood for a different lender like tomorrow. But because you don't know that because you work through these AMCs who all work through their independent appraisers, no one's talking to each other and I have to go find my own appraiser. So it's a big scheduling and logistics issue. 
And so where Regora comes in is we're, we try to verticalize that entire process. And so we have built modern appraisal workflow software that plugs into the core systems of the lenders, connects directly to appraisers, and uses you know Uber-style algorithms that can essentially solve that issue of, we know that this appraiser is in this neighborhood on this day and can get it allocated in a way more efficient way from A to Z. Um, and so in that regard, we help reduce the turn times of these appraisals while also automating a lot of the manual tasks that you know a lender might have to do by hand before. Yeah, that's huge. You're you're right. A lot of it is is just a scheduling issues. Of course, the 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 staff is just not there. Now, there are not enough people who want to become an appraiser. It's an aging demographic, and uh, that's something which is required on probably 70-80% of loans. Um, Fannie Freddie has done well with, with property inspection waivers recently, but still majority of the loans have to go through that. What is your take on uh, some of the initiatives that, that the government agencies are doing, especially Fannie Freddie under uh, the new FHFA director? Um, what what do you think they're doing right in terms of future of appraisals and, and to impact the consumer experience that it should? Uh, and what, in your opinion, they should be doing more uh, to change some of these appraisal requirements down the road? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think they're doing the right thing. And to your point, like the main issue is this supply issue of this aging appraiser demographic. If there were 2 million appraisers, you know, it'd be way easier to get this stuff yeah. scheduled because there'd be one available right around the corner sort of thing all the time. Um, and so there have been attempts by various like, government agencies and appraiser initiatives to try to get more appraisers into the industry, but it just hasn't worked really. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, so what the GSEs are doing to tackle that is saying, well, you know, not every single property needs a full appraisal. Like if there are very cookie cutter properties where there's a Texas ranch with 20 other identical Texas ranches, this borrower has really good credit risk. Yeah. We want to make sure that the property is still standing and there's nothing like egregious going on with it, but we don't necessarily need like a highly trained person that's very expensive and in low supply to go and do a full analysis. And so it's taking a risk-based approach to collateral underwriting. And so I think that conceptually is great. Now, where I get a little bit concerned is, you know, the black box that is driving that in terms of like the risk parameters. So in the peak of 2021, where there was just like an insane amount of refis, mm -hmm like the vast majority of refis had a complete inspection waiver or appraisal waiver. Yes. So, you know, over time, those models get weaker and weaker if there's not enough training data to replace it, you know, in the form of these actual inspections getting done. So, you know, the only kind of long-term catastrophic risk is if, you know, they go overboard with the use of alternative products and it causes, you know, too much risk systemically in the system. Yeah, that's a great point that that I hadn't thought of is, is you're right, is that if you keep giving property inspection waivers um, one after the other, and it's been like 10 years since the last actual appraisal happened on the property, then probably we are too far from the truth now suddenly is because we don't know what the what the condition of the property might be. That's that's interesting take. And, and also something difficult for GSEs to balance, I guess, because on one side, we are, especially as lenders, we would want more and more uh, situations where we don't have to send an appraiser to the property. On the other side, you're right. I mean, are you taking inordinate amount of risk is because 
you don't do you still have enough data to to say give a property inspection waiver on that yeah exactly so i think you know it'll be interesting if um you know folks like me can actually solve that appraisal problem where even on full appraisals you know it's pretty fast turn times then you know lenders may not be as eager necessarily to beat down the door for these alternative products because you know consumers also don't want to get ripped off right if i'm going to go and buy a property and i put out an offer for you know 500 grand but in reality it's only worth 400 maybe i want to renegotiate that offer you know um so you know even on some of these alternative products we've seen borrowers still interested in getting that full appraisal actually um, so it'll be definitely interesting to see kind of what the steady state is over the next couple of years. It is. And and how is, is Regora adjusting to all of that, given the fact that there is a definite kind of a push from the administration to to come up with some, some of these uh, ideas around allowing more desktop appraisals, allowing more property inspection waivers wherever possible. So we are we are trying to go away from this real person in the house kind of a situation um, how are you adjusting to it? Are you are you building new products to cater to some of these uh, new initiatives and new new approvals within GSEs? Are you thinking even further ahead on what could be on the play and, and working towards it? Uh, talk to us about what's what's on the plate for Agora over next say six to twelve months. Yeah, no, we're we're definitely preparing and and making sure that you know we can handle everything and anything. You know, I, I do think that because we're in such a regulated industry, it is pretty difficult to do something that isn't approved by the GSEs, right? <laughs> Unless you're in like the non-QM stuff or, you know, you have investors that can accommodate that in some way. So, you know, you kind of, if you want to build stuff scalable, you do need to kind of align with how the GSEs are doing it. And so, you know, they've put out various information about what they're planning and, and yeah, we are working on products to make sure that we can fulfill those alternative inspections. And so essentially, if you're a lender, you know, you're going to submit your loan file parameters to the GSEs. They're going to spit out full appraisal, desktop, hybrid, inspection waiver. And, you know, our system is just going to be able to go help and get that fulfilled regardless of whatever it is. And it's using, you know, using technology like 3D scanning and, you know, mobile apps for inspectors and things like that. So, yeah, it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is it is highly regulated and trying to put millions of dollars into a product that probably nobody will end up using at the end of the day is, is not the best use of your of your time and time and money and effort. I was uh, interviewing the founder of Hostai AI. That's a that's an artificial intelligence company that's mostly working with insurance right now. But but what they're doing is pretty cool is is with basically just taking a picture of um, say a kitchen cabinet or a countertop or something, it can figure out what kind of material was used how in some cases the dimensions of a room or a, or or certain a certain appliances or products or something so it's it's very cool in what it can potentially help the the entire appraisal process with um, but again the the problem is that until you get to GSEs to approve a technology like that uh, you shouldn't i mean you can't be investing a lot of money into it it's it's not like Uber and DoorDash, where you first build a product and then worry about the government approvals. It's it's actually the other way around. You need to first worry about the government approvals or the or the regulatory approvals before you can build the product. Yeah. And honestly, I think that's why partially the mortgage industry is honestly probably behind, you know, other industries when it comes to technology innovation. And I also think that as a result of that, the average NPS score in the industry is pretty low for just general technology providers. Like, you know, a common trope is like, 
yeah, you know, we're not the biggest fan of X, Y, Z, but it would be a pain to rip them out, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I'm excited for all of that to finally catch up here in the next couple of years. Yeah, I could take a dozen names on on that, but I will probably not. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk about um, just from from an entrepreneurship fact. Few of the things about Rigora, you have raised, I think, Series B now. You have fair amount of of, of funding, I would think. As a, as a founder, you might not think so, but fair amount of funding for um, for the industry that that you are trying to disrupt. Talk to us about. Uh, your approach, uh, your philosophy on fundraising, is that something a lot of my uh, audience is interested in there in that stage uh, of their startup companies where they're thinking about it? Um, when did you think it was the right time to to go and raise capital? Uh, how much did you think was, was a good thing? What kind of partners and investors did you look for? Just overall philosophy around, uh, around capital raise. Yeah, it's a big topic. And when I um, advise entrepreneurs on this, it really starts all the way from the beginning in terms of, you know, what are your goals as a founder, as an entrepreneur? Because when you sign up for, it's a very specific type of business model to get into the venture capital, you know, back startup world. You have to have the potential to become a multi-billion dollar company. Sure. Otherwise, you know, no one's going to invest in you. So, you know, there are a bunch of companies out there where, you know, you could build a good lifestyle business in like a niche thing um, that just aren't suited to conventional venture capital style businesses. So, you know, number one, I think you kind of need to figure out what you're actually looking for, because if you are going to become a multi-billion dollar company, you know, it's going to take most likely, unless you are, you know, the top, you know, one of the top entrepreneurs ever, somewhere between five and 10 years. Sure. Uh, re- really long time. Um, and and you're on a roller coaster that you can't get off until you're on the other side mm-hmm. of it um, because you're dependent on the funding. Because if you take venture capital, you know, you have to grow, grow, grow. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we did it because, yeah, when I was starting out, I was a 22 year old with my college roommate. And, you know, we want to just take the biggest home run swing possible. And so, you know, basically when we decided to raise was when that bootstrap money that we got was about to run out. Um, (laughs) And, you know, the the mortgage industry is also very capital intensive, right? Because, you know, you you think about building a loan origination system that would take, you know, millions and millions of dollars to even just get a minimum viable product. Yes. And so it's a little bit different than other software industries where it's more expensive to get to kind of baseline product market fit. Uh, because it's a mission critical system. If one thing you know messes up, then the entire mortgage pipeline explodes. So, um, so yeah, we we kind of knew that in that regard, we were a venture capital based business. Now, I think what we're seeing in the last six months with this huge pullback in the market and venture capital isn't as plentiful, mm-hmm. that I do think that it is a good idea for companies to have the strategy to get to profitability much sooner than you might think and having really good unit economics and, you know, keeping the burn in a reasonable place because, you know, who knows how long it'll take or if it ever does get back to the crazy place that it was where, you know, people were just throwing tens of millions of dollars at companies that probably shouldn't have gotten it necessarily. Um, So yeah, I don't know. That that was a lot, but did that, that generally cover the, uh, the, some of the questions? Yeah, absolutely does. I mean, I start with why do you need the capital and then be ready to deliver what that capital um, asks from you because you're right. I mean, you don't not every business is 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 a venture capital 
business. I mean, you you might want to have a solid business, but you may not be trying to build the next unicorn, and which is fine. Not every business model has to be exactly the same. And you could just raise some seed capital, bring, build an MVP, and then just kind of build from there. You, uh, But some businesses require much more capital, and then you need to be ready to grow it the way it is and go through a market like 2022 or maybe next year when the capital may not be that plentiful. So, I mean, can you still run the business and, and can can still hopefully take it to profitability at this point? So there are multiple factors to consider, but good to, I mean, everything that you said totally makes sense. Now, um, last thing, or one of the things that that I did want to ask you, Brian, so you have a co-founder. Do you have one co-founder or do you have more? Just one. Just one. And um, again, that's something that, that comes up a lot is, uh, people use all kinds of approaches when when it comes to finding uh, a co-founder. Sometimes it's easy because you probably went to college together or whatever. Or you're sometimes it's just your best friend. Sometimes you go to a hackathon or something and find somebody who who you think might be a good coder or programmer. I think would be a good fit for something like this. Um, how did you find your co-founder, and what do you suggest? Say future founders should be looking at in their approach to find a potential co-founder uh, for their companies. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's like honestly probably one of the most important things when you're first getting going because it's a make or break thing. Yes. Um, and yeah, to your point, luckily, like I was graced with my college roommate and best friend being also an exceptional technical person. Um, and so it was kind of like the perfect combination, but that would have only been the case if, you know, we, we had, we, we, cause we had already gotten alignment, you know, will my co-founder who is the CTO, he did all the engineering stuff in the beginning. Um, you know, he was trying to do things throughout all of college. So he had built like a drop shipping company and then went on to the next project and the next one. So he was always trying to do things. He just never had stuck with it. But he had this mentality that it's like, you know, we're going to figure something out or, you know, we're going to be homeless. Um, and <laughs> I think and I think that, you know, like literally in the beginning of senior year, we were like, we cannot get real jobs. We have to figure something out. Um, and I think that you need to kind of vet out that like ride or die mentality mm. with a co-founder, because what is absolutely horrible scenario is that you're one two years in, you're making some progress, but maybe the going is getting tough and that person bows out. You know, not only is that like not a good look for potential investors, it probably derails morale across, you know, the company. Um, and they probably take a big chunk of the equity, which is dilutive as well. So, you know, I think that, yes, you want synergistic skill sets, obviously. Like a lot of times you see sometimes people who are a little bit naive in the business will have like, three co-founders that are all business oriented, you know, it's like, well, what are you guys all going to do? Um, and so I think, you, you know, you do need to get differentiated and, and synergistic skill sets, but also there needs to be like a mentality and cultural alignment. And luckily Will and I were just in the same, you know, mindset and phase of our lives where it was like, no wife, no kids, you know, the, we have nothing to lose. Let's take, take as much as we possibly can. Yeah, taking ride or die to the next level, I see. So it's like, okay, this is, uh, and and it's hard to find that, right? I mean, it's it's uh, it's not always hard to find that when things are going well. It's it's hard to find that when 
things are not going well, then suddenly you thought you had all this alignment in the world and that starts falling apart is because now people have different expectations from, from their lives and, and from the company. So it is, as you rightly mentioned, it's probably one of the most important thing, if not the most important thing that you need to figure out uh, at the beginning. Um, one last thing, Brian, is that, I mean, we all um, have our successes. Regora, of course, has, has had a really good five years ride so far. Um, what are some of the some of the things that did not go well? Things which, uh, looking retrospectively, you think that oh, we would have done it differently. Uh, maybe at the beginning when you were trying to figure out what we want to build, but some of the failings that that our uh, audience can learn from. Because of course, successes is just one part of building a company like this. There have I'm sure there have been multiple failures that that would have come along the way. So. Talk to us a little bit um, about things that did not go well. Yeah, I think there's two really easy, clear-cut things. Um, number one was, I think that we didn't hire well in the beginning. Um, there were, you know, various important roles where we thought we were bringing in the right person, and it turned out to not be the case, and that really derailed us and would delay you know, progress that we were trying to make for, you know, months at a time. And so I think that kind of common trope of like, you know, it's not the C or D players that really derail you. It's like the B, B minus players because they stick around and, you know, they're not doing horribly, but they're also not doing good and, and they stay longer than you should. So I think that, um, you know, looking back, yeah, we probably would have been a little bit more careful in terms of like, who we were bringing on in different roles and, you know, how we hired. And then the other thing I think is just the product focus. I think early on we were, you know, chasing anyone and everything and saying yes to everything. You know, we were talking mm -hmm. to every single lender. They were like, Oh, it'd be nice if we could do X, Y, Z. And we'd sure. be like, we can, we can build that, you know? Um, and at us, you know, while it did help us get a bunch of lenders, it made the product a little bit weaker in various areas because we weren't as focused on the things that mattered. Um, and so it took us maybe a little bit longer to get to the place where the product is, you know, now where it is, where it's like, you know, the best in the industry. Um, but we probably could have gotten there faster if we had sacrificed some of the initial growth, you know, for faster growth later down the line sort of thing. Um, and so that's kind of just tying it back to the whole, you know, venture capital style business. Like, you know, you have to show growth, right? And so I think a lot of founders probably make that similar mistake where you go chasing the shiny object instead of staying true to like the core focus and the core product mission. And so luckily, you know, we didn't get too derailed. I think there were some minor things, but, you know, probably could have gotten to where we are a little bit faster. Wow. And that's, that's yeah, that's extremely invaluable for for someone trying to figure this out in terms of in terms of the advice. It's it's I'm 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 blown away by the by the maturity of your inter entrepreneurship in in just five years of of running Regora. I, I interview a lot of uh, uh, even late stage founders and and and, and people, and um, the amount of learning that you have had in what is relatively a short period of time, I would think it's it's really it's it's not that long and. A lot of advice that you had uh, for the audiences. I'm sure they will they will find it they will find it very valuable. So, thank you for being on the show, Brian. It was it was uh, amazing to have you and and to share with you 
share with us the the journey towards building Gregora, what's what's uh, holds what holds in the future for you guys, and more importantly, a lot of lessons in entrepreneurship, which. I mean, you'll have to go to a ton of conferences and read a ton of books too to get that just that 10 minutes of nugget that that Brian came up with. So thanks again, Brian, on that. Yeah, really appreciate me having you. Appreciate the kind words. And um, yeah, great time with you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Shashank Redemption your host Shashank Shekhar. Be sure to follow, subscribe and review us and check out shashankredemption.com to connect with me.